This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mysteries with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former Russian KGB spy. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Sample, on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the super awesome science show. Do you get enough sleep? Popular culture would have you believe you don't. But is this true? Well, the short answer is no, and the longer answer is it's complicated. This week, we're going to look at what happens to your body when it's time to go to bed. We'll also look at ways you can improve your sleep, including one that will bring you back to your childhood. And in our SAS class, we're going to explore why changing school start times might help our kids' health. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Techo, and I'm going to show you how to improve the chances of getting those needed hours of beauty sleep. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. What time did you go to bed last night? When did you wake up? Now, calculate the hours you slept, making sure to leave out those times when you arose for a midnight snack or bladder relief. Did it add up to seven hours or more? According to a Statistics Canada report from last year, the answer is probably yes. Most Canadians seem to be getting about seven hours per night. That may sound good, but if you look at the average from 2005, over eight hours, it's obvious we're getting less sleep than we used to. And it gets worse. When you look at the quality of that sleep or how you feel waking up, the numbers show about half of the people under the age of 65 don't believe the sleep did them any good. Sleep was difficult to achieve, it was interrupted, and tiredness was not relieved in the morning. And almost a third felt the sleep could not prevent them from wanting to rest sometime during the day. And this was recently confirmed by the staffing firm Account Temps, who revealed that 31% of people often feel tired at work. Researchers have been trying for decades to figure out how to improve the quality of sleep. Now, when I was a kid, the answer was to give a person a mild tranquilizer like Valium. It would quickly knock a person out and keep them down for several hours. But it was also addictive, making it a short-term solution. Now, because of this rather troubling side effect, other options were developed and are now on the market. Ambien is probably the most popular one. It's not a tranquilizer, but a hypnotic, calming your system down to a point where it can relax and sleep. There are also natural means to help your body enjoy bedtime. Chamomile tea is probably the most common. It acts in the same way as Valium, just without the addiction. Other herbs such as valerian and passionflower also bring down stress levels, giving you the chance to relax and sleep. Then there's melatonin. It's not an herb or a drug. It's a chemical your body makes to tell you it's time to go to bed. 
And unlike other solutions, which shock your system into wanting rest, this particular treatment is designed to convince your brain that it's time to get some rest. Now, how all of this happens requires an understanding of the processes occurring in your brain that tell our bodies it's time to go to sleep. It's a lot more complicated than you might think. Thankfully, I have Dr. Michael Anto on the line. He's a professor at the University of Calgary and focuses on how our bodies fall asleep and how something called a Zeitgeber can help us to get that slumber or keep us from our beauty rest. Let's start at the beginning. What biologically drives us to be awake or to fall asleep? So there, there's quite a bit, I guess, going on in that question there. Um, in, in behavior uh, scientists like us, we, we like to think about the, uh, the ultimate cause of behavior and the proximate cause. So, of course, the ultimate is why we do these behaviors. And it's pretty obvious why we're awake, to do all those things that help us keep alive and uh, to, to leave our copies of our genes. Uh, as far as why we sleep, there's probably lots of reasons, rest, uh, restoration, uh, and learning. Now, the ultimate cause of these behavior, or the proximate cause, why we actually do these behaviors when we do, uh, that gets into what you're talking about with the zeitgebers and, and uh, the timing of these behaviors. So there's certain times of the day when it's good for us to be awake and certain times of the day when it's good for us to be asleep. And, and our brain actually has a clock that actually helps us uh, figure out when those uh, behaviors should occur. Now, when it comes to that clock, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's run by something the size of a pea in your brain. Is that right? Probably a little smaller. A smaller? That's interesting. Now, now let's see if I got this correct. It's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. That's right. Okay, let's just call it the SCN. <laughs> I, I think the acronym might be appropriate here. So what is the role of this less than a pea-sized part of our brain? Yeah, so it's, it's about uh, 20,000 cells, uh, and uh, <laughs> its job is, is to keep track of of uh, time of day, so it gets input from our eyes, so it knows when the sun's up and it knows when it's dark out, and uh, then it provides a time signal to the rest of our brain and our body so that biological processes occur at the proper time of the day, whether that's getting ready to digest your meal at lunchtime or suppertime, or getting ready to go to the bathroom before you head off to work, or um, even getting ready to fall asleep in the evening. So it provides that time signal. So let me guess. The Zeitgebers do something to influence how the SCN figures out whether we should be awake or asleep. Right. So a Zeitgeber is it's a, any stimulus that provides information about time. Uh, so it comes from the German of time giver, Zeitgeber. And uh, the main one, of course, is light. Uh, so that's why our oh, SCN okay. is actually connected to our, to our eyes, uh, so it gets input from the retina. There's other Zeitgebers, so in our lab we look at uh, exercise and, and sleep deprivation, um, but food also can be a Zeitgeber. Wait, so what you're saying is that if I'm having that nice tryptophan lace turkey meal, and yes, I know it's not the tryptophan, it's the calories, but that in itself is a Zeitgeber that could make me want to have a nap instead of maybe watching the football game. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, if you, if you just eat it one time a day, you get ready for that meal. Some, some uh, big leaders of industry will just eat once a day and they'll have all their business meetings right before that big meal. So they're hungry and they, uh, it, they actually find it gives them an edge in business dealings. That's fascinating. I know a lot of people have trouble getting to sleep. And earlier I talked about a natural chemical that they take, melatonin. Now, this is naturally made by the body, as I've said, but I'm curious, how does supplementation fit into the effect of Zeitgebers, the SCN, and our overall biological clock? So uh, it's interesting because it, it's 
it's both an output of the clock and it also feeds into the clock. So the clock itself, one of the rhythms that we as scientists or physicians might study in a patient is, uh, is melatonin output. Uh, it's a really reliable indicator of uh, your body time. So when, when melatonin starts to get secreted, it's secreted uh, at night and um, uh, probably about 10 p.m. in your average person. It can be inhibited by light, the light coming in from the retina uh, will turn off your, your melatonin secretion. So, and then again, yeah, even a constant environment, uh, you'll still see that really nice rhythm of melatonin production. But on the flip side, the melatonin can also be used uh, to affect your circadian clock and to affect sleep. So um, there's really good evidence in people with um, sleep disorders that melatonin taken a few hours before bedtime will actually help them fall asleep. In terms of the circadian part, though, um, it, it seems to help people if they're trying to get over jet lag. So if they, they fly to Europe or to Japan, if you take melatonin at the right time, it'll actually accelerate how quickly you can uh, resynchronize. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's um, a sleep disorder called non-24. Oh, that's a real thing? No, I thought that was made up by the pharmaceutical companies to be able to sell a type of drug. It actually exists? It does. So the, the, the term non-24 has been made up by the pharma uh, companies. Okay. Uh, it's called delayed sleep phase syndrome, so, but it's the same thing. Uh, it's just delayed sleep phase syndrome is a bit of a mouthful. Uh, non-24 has kind of a cachet. Uh, okay. But yeah, these are people who can't fall asleep until um, 3 a.m. and have a hard time getting up for work the next day. So they have a hard time getting up before, you know, 10, 11, noon or something like that. I used to call it the undergraduate disorder, <laughs> but they grow out of it. <laughs> I actually thought it was called the professor writing a grant syndrome. <laughs> not sleeping. Okay. Now, I do a lot of travel, and and I've talked with some of my American friends about jet lag and and how to get a good night's sleep, and they seem to have this very weird trend going on. Um, They tend to take Ambien. Now, I guess it's taken over from other medications like Valium, and, and maybe that is a good thing, but from your perspective, how does this compared to, say, melatonin or, or some other natural method like valerian root or, or chamomile tea? With, with Valium or Ambien, um, I, I would say be careful with those. Um, they're, they're fairly strong, uh, especially the Valium, uh, fairly strong uh, drugs that will, they do help you sleep. Uh, you don't want to use them for a very long time because you can build up a tolerance to these drugs, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that you'll need to take higher doses over time. Um, so the best thing... Uh, for using, if you want to use those, it's more for in conjunction with a cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is, has the best uh, remission rate. So if you, it has the best success, but it takes a lot of effort to go through cognitive behavioral therapy. And some of these people come in and just say, look, I just need a good night's sleep. Give me one good night's sleep and then we can sit down and talk. What you can do is start your patients with, with Ambien or Valium um, and, and then get them the problems through the cognitive behavioral therapy. And then as the, the therapy is working, then wean them off the drugs. So, you know, these drugs might be good for short-term, a couple of weeks, but in the long-term, they don't show success and can actually cause rebound problems when you try to get off of them. So it's not a, it's not a permanent fix, but it's, it's a good little crutch to get you onto things that will work better. Uh, valerian uh, might even fall into that category. Um, it, so there are some chemicals in valerian root that do seem to enhanced sleep, uh, even with the, the chamomile tea, although a little bit less so. Mm-hmm. I'd say with the chamomile tea, um, one of the big things about trying to get sleep is to have a good routine that in- involves um, something calming for the, the hour or two leading up to bed. And if you make you know a nice chamomile tea, a tea without caffeine in it, um, part of your routine to help you calm down and relax, it will actually uh, help you fall asleep. Whether it's that that helps you uh, calm down, whether it's a bath that helps you calm down, or just some yoga that helps you calm down, something that helps you turn off your mind, relax your body as you're getting ready for bed will really help with that sleep.
Yoga or meditation? Pills? Cups of tea? They're all effective in helping adults get to sleep. But what about children? Now, research has shown anywhere from a quarter to two-thirds, that's right, 66% of kids may have difficulty with their sleep. It may be delayed due to fears. There may be frequent interruptions, especially when nightmares occur. Or sometimes, kids just simply don't want to go to bed. Scientifically called bedtime resistance, although I have a feeling parents call it something else that I can't really say on the air. Trying to figure out how to deal with a child's sleep problems is not easy, and many of the options Dr. Antle discussed do not apply. But parents, don't fear. There's another option that can work for kids and, as you'll soon hear, for adults as well. It's officially known as bibliotherapy, although most of us call it bedtime stories. The word bibliotherapy was coined back in 1916 in the Atlantic Monthly. It was a term to describe how reading could be used to deal with health troubles. Now, back then, no one was quite sure what the benefits could be. After all, it was reading. That's it. No drugs, no routines, just an open book, and let the rest happen naturally. But a few decades later, in 1942, a review of over 500 people revealed reading might actually be the best possible medicine. Now, over the years, people ended up earning their PhDs studying the benefits of reading on health. Originally, it was aimed at determining whether bibliotherapy was really a science or an art. But as the theses came in, it became clear, reading is really good for you. Now, back to the kids. There are four main benefits of bibliotherapy as it relates to sleep. One, a reduction in disruptive bedtime behavior and night waking. That's always a good thing. Two, a reduction in sleep onset time. It means they get to sleep faster. Three, an increase in sleep duration. They sleep longer. And four, a decrease in problem behavior during waking hours, which is music to any parent or maybe even babysitter's ears. Now, reading on your own is nice, but there's nothing like having someone read to you. It gives you the opportunity to curl up in bed and allow the words to gently lull you to sleep. Now, for children, parents are usually the go-to storytellers, but to be honest, I'm 47, I can't really call up my mom and ask for a story. For the record, she probably still would, but I won't be bugging her anytime soon. Thankfully for me and all you other adults out there, there's Catherine Nikolai. She has personally devoted herself to being our bedtime storyteller. Her podcast, Nothing Much Happens, is devoted to telling compelling stories that can help those of legal age and over find some well-deserved sleep. I have her on the line, and I do want to get into her podcast, but before I do, I have to ask her one simple question. Do you read before you go to bed? I do. I've always read before bed. Um... I've been a voracious reader my whole life. And while I can sometimes get sucked into the whole checking the same four websites obsessively before you fall asleep thing, like many people can get sucked into, I always read before I go to sleep. So maybe there will come a a point where I I say, okay, that's enough. I've got to put my devices away. And then there's a book for at least 20 or 30 minutes before I sleep. I've been doing a little bit of reading into bibliotherapy, and I find it fascinating that what you are reading has been the subject of such great debate. I mean, I kind of get it. 
I can't read a scientific paper before going to bed because it just gets me hypothesizing and developing experiments for the lab. And in a way, I've seen the same thing with other people with something like Harry Potter. You know, those first few books they tell me really helped, but then the later ones, they were just so dark that it ended up leading to problems. So I'm kind of curious, have you seen similar issues with the content of what people are reading? Definitely, and I definitely noticed that in myself, and that was part of what kind of drove me to create the podcast, was that there were some books that I would read, and, and I, was, I would put them down and turn off the light. I could not find a place to put my brain that felt comfortable and relaxed, um, especially you know if I was reading something um, that was sort of apocalyptic, future uh, futuristic stuff that seemed just devastating while, while it was captivating to read and I enjoyed it as a reader, I did not enjoy it as a sleeper. So um, although I don't feel that way about Harry Potter and I'm not at all shy about saying that I'm very well uh, uh, well acquainted with the Harry Potter universe, but maybe it's because I've read the book so many times that um, that I, I don't have any trouble and I used to listen to the audiobooks of Harry Potter a lot to fall asleep. Um, but I would notice that there was just this, I needed this bridge between what I was reading and my brain actually being able to relax and fall asleep. I think especially if you're the kind of person that when you read and you get to the end of the book, you feel a real heartache about saying goodbye to the characters. You feel really connected to them emotionally. Then when you're reading about something with a lot of upheaval or um, devastation or uncertainty, then how do you separate that from the, your, your own feelings in order to relax enough to find sleep? Another thing I find interesting about bibliotherapy is that there are recommendations for specific types of books. It's almost like they're prescriptions. And, and I think that's pretty awesome on its own. But I got to admit, when I read, I don't specifically think about medicinal value. I think of it more like a meditation. And the reason I say that is because our previous guest suggested yoga and meditation may be better for sleep than drugs. I'm curious about where you see reading on this spectrum of sleep aids. Because I am also a full-time yoga teacher and teach meditation every day and practice meditation, to me they do seem really similar. And the way I think about it is you've probably had this experience where you're in bed and you're reading and maybe you're in a really uncomfortable position, but you cannot keep your eyes open. The steady movement of your eyes across the page, maybe you're not even absor absor absorbing the words, maybe they're not really sticking in your head and the next day you have to go back and read the page again, mm -hmm. but in that moment, you're so present with what you're doing that you can't stay awake. Your body is lulled into this place of there being nothing else to do but go into full restoration mode. But then you put the book down, you turn the light off, you get as comfortable as you could imagine being, and you can't sleep. Mm -hmm. Because in that moment, the mind has switched back on. Before, it had a place to be. I, I always think about it sort of like the brain is like a truck with a brick on the gas pedal. It goes even if we aren't steering it. And so what narrative gives us is an opportunity to to kind of trap it on a track and let it roll around in a circle rather than just racing off into the wild. So I think that's the real gift of narrative, um, maybe even more so than trying to just meditate. And I'm a regular meditator, but I don't read it, meditate to fall asleep. I use narrative because to me that's much more useful. Now let's talk about your podcast, or in light of books being therapeutic, maybe we should call it pod therapy. Anyways, people read by themselves past a certain age, but you are bringing back that joyous moment when someone else reads for us. 
Well, I mean, okay, fine. I like it, and I'm sure most people do. Maybe Fred Savage, not so much if he has Deadpool reading to him, but I digress. Anyway, what has the response been like for you as other people's personal storyteller? So many people tell me um, that they didn't expect it to work and that it works so quickly they can't believe it, or it worked so fully they can't believe it. Um, in fact, I worry sometimes that I'm going to talk myself out of having a job here because they'll, they'll tell me um, I have a little introduction piece where I sort of explain how it's going to work and then say a little bit about the story and then I begin telling. And people tell me way before you even got to the story, I was out. <laughs> sometimes I think maybe I don't need multiple episodes. <laughs> But um, I think that they're, you know, while it's useful to read a book or something that's still very active, um, when you're listening to someone tell you a story, now, first of all, of course, it might bring us back to a very comfortable feeling in childhood of being cared for and safe and tucked in at night and being read a story. Um, But also, on a technological point of view, that means that you don't have to have the light on. You don't have to be looking at anything. So it's not stimulating to your brain. You can turn everything off. And that's why the stories themselves are designed to not be overstimulating. They're about very mundane daily things so that the mind has a, something to rest on and follow but it doesn't sort of wake up and say but what happens next that's why I call it nothing much happens and you write these stories by yourself right I do yeah now do you think this might inspire other people to do the same I mean do you think a person could write their own bedtime story or is it something that we really should depend on you know that external stimulus in the form of someone else's writing I think you can write them yourself because that's really how I stumbled upon this as a technique. I've done this my whole life. In fact, the first one of my earliest memories when I was about four years old was telling myself a bedtime story to fall asleep. So I think that it doesn't have to be something that you actually physically write down. For years, I didn't write anything down. But it was this very deliberate turning my mind to something relaxing, to something calm or something safe in order to fall asleep. And the more details I could fill in, the more complete that world got and the easier it was for me to slip into. Some people, I think, probably will feel like um, it's just too much pressure to have to think of something. No problem, (laughs) you know, (laughs) rely on me. But I have gotten quite a few messages from people who say, can I write for your podcast, which I really appreciate. I I just don't want to share. But I say, well, maybe, you know, that's what you're going to do is you're going to find some space for your story. So I hope that, you know, it does free people up a little bit to the idea of, you know, I could create something. And that in itself can be very therapeutic. It's SAS class time. And today we're going to be talking about school. More specifically, when it starts and how this can factor into a student's health. When I was going to high school in the 1980s, we had a start time of 8.45 in the morning. It was perfect for me as I had the chance to get a good night's sleep, get up in the morning, have a good breakfast, and head in to do a quick workout or take part in a basketball game. But many schools start earlier than this, and according to our guest teacher for today, this may be hurting a child's ability to stay healthy. In a paper published earlier this year, she showed that earlier start times may mean increased weight gain. Our guest teacher today is Dr. Jean-Vierre Gariepi, and she is a postdoctoral fellow at the McGill University's Institute for Health and Social Policy. Let me tell you, if you are part of a PTA, school board, or just simply a student in school, you need to listen to this SAS class. All right, right off the bat, I have to ask you, what made you think of school start times as an indicator for health? I mean, we all know school is mandatory and has to start in the morning, but the idea that the time of the first bell could be important, I I never even thought about that. Well, actually, 
we have a lot of research done on adults and how what time they start work has an effect on their health, especially um, adults that have shift work or that work at night that has a big impact on their health, like things like they're more at risk for like obesity, cancer, depression, things like that. So I thought, well, for kids, their work start time is their school start time. And does that have an impact on their health? The other thing is that, as you may know or not, um, teenagers actually have a different sleep patterns than adults. They tend to fall asleep later and wake up later. And so already I knew that if we asked students to start school too early, maybe that could have an effect on their health. So, so tell me how you did it. Did you take a bunch of students and find out based on the start time of their schools, different health parameters? I mean, did you ask them questions, weigh them? Somehow I imagine like all of this would seem very complicated. Um, it is and it isn't. What we did was that we surveyed 30,000 students across all of Canada in 362 schools. It wow. covered the East Coast from the West Coast all the way to the Arctic Circle. And then we asked them what time they go to bed in the, uh, at night, what time they wake up in the morning, and we asked them about their weight. And that's how we got to um, some of their own data. And then I called all 362 schools and I asked them, what time do you start in the morning? <laughs> really? And of course, they just let you know. I mean, this isn't classified information or anything. It's not a secret information, but the funny thing is that um, until my study, we didn't know what time school started in the morning in Canada. We had no idea. Let's talk about the results of the study. It says for the health of school kids, particularly teenagers, starting school later in the day is probably best. Exactly. And it's good for your health. It's good for your grades. It's even been associated with reduced risk in accidents, including car accidents. That, that's quite interesting. All right. Let me play the part of a school board here. I agree we should start school later for the health of the kids. But does that mean we're going to have to end school later as well? I mean, it's, I guess you would have to. I think in the way that the schedule is now, I mean, kids have to eat lunch and have to have breaks. So, yeah, I think we would have to shift the whole schedule a little bit later. Okay. I mean, according to, like, my research and the research of others, it looks like probably, like, 9, 9.30, even 10 o'clock might be the right time. And it's true that that could, I mean, that's not an easy thing to do, right? As much as we might like to see the later start time, I doubt any change is going to come anytime soon, even with these studies. So if there's a student listening right now and is in a school with an early start time, do you have any suggestions to help that person improve their health without adhering to a later schedule and unfortunately ending up with a slew of late slips and, and maybe even detentions? Yeah, absolutely. So a good sleep hygiene is really important. That means hopefully going to bed at the same time every night, putting any screens, cell phones away an hour before bed is usually recommended, or at least having some sort of blue light filters, which is now commonly available for cell phones and tablets. Yeah, I use my blue light filter every night, and, and it seems to work for me. Yeah, me too. And, um, and just telling, just talking about it with the, your, you know, adolescents and kids about how important it is to get a good night's sleep. I think sometimes they don't realize it. And, you know, that's a good start. And also, this is a bit controversial, but if kids are not able to get the sleep they need at night, it's okay to take a nap. 
Okay, I'm sorry, but I have trouble taking a 10-minute power nap, and I'm 47 years old. I don't even remember if I took naps as a teenager. I mean, I did it in university, but that was just because I was so exhausted. But it does come across as an interesting idea. I mean, do you think that maybe we should keep that part of school from our daycare days and we should just make sure that we have nap time throughout? I love it. Well, that's it for this episode of the Super Awesome Science Show. I hope it's given you some hints on how to get that beauty rest. If so, make sure to tell your family and friends so we can all get a good night's sleep. If you have any questions or want to make a comment, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at JATetro. And for ideas longer than 280 characters, you can always email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe. It's free. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us to get more people to find the podcast. Thanks again. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.